What I missed last night, my, I went to watch the Super Bowl with my brother, and he's not a Christian, so we didn't go to church. But I missed you guys. But the prayers here, there's certain elements I want to touch on. One, God hears us. That's going to be touched on in the sermon. And I love how God is weaving body life together with what he is also prepared for. God hears us. Rudy's talking about how he misses and how he loves the fact that we were here in a church. And I missed you guys, and I'm, I'm glad to be back here today. Stephen's talking about sometimes we have to love those that don't love us. And then Kim was bearing others' burdens. For the past couple of weeks, Jason's been taking us through a study on 1 Peter. I get to finish it up today, and I want to review what we've learned so far in that study. The first chapter is, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We have been called together, and we have been built together. The second chapter is that we who are many become one holy sanctuary. We are living stones being built together into a holy sanctuary. And then the next chapter talks about mutual submission. Mutual submission is the rule of God's kingdom. And then the last one we talked about suffering. And he says, he ended it with this little catchphrase, trust God and do what's right. I wish it ended there. I wish we could say that we're joined together into this happy family. Even in the midst of pain, that we can live together in happiness. But how do we trust God in the midst of suffering? Eleven years ago, Diane and I buried our son. A parent should not have to bury a child. We have a friend who, years before we met her, when she was a vibrant young mother, lost both her legs to a flesh-eating disease. Sometimes, pain and suffering are beyond our control. But sometimes they are part of our control. Twenty-five years ago, well before I met Diane, I was overwhelmed with betrayal and heartache, and a friend corrected me by saying, you don't trust the God you say you served. Those were harsh words, but they were true. And like a scalpel, they cut right through all of the the crap of my self-pity and the woe is me that happens when we end up suffering. But now the question is, how do we trust God in the midst of suffering? How do we trust the God we say we serve? Well, the first step is to recognize the root of our suffering. Sometimes it's our own self-induced. Other times it's not our doing. But the real root of our suffering is found in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. It says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We must recognize that the root of our suffering is in the war being raged against God by Satan. It's a war being waged since the garden. When we have become citizens of the kingdom of God, it means we are no longer citizens of the kingdom of Satan. We are at war. The Greek word for devour (coughs) means to swallow up or to consume. It's not surprising that oftentimes when we are encumbered by our suffering, we say that we're drowning in our sorrows, or we're saying that our, our suffering has consumed us. And that was the state that I was in when my friend confronted me. When we become consumed by our sorrows, we end up removing God 
Earlier in 1 Peter, we were told that God is our living hope. He is the one who has called us into the kingdom. When we step out of that kingdom, when we come and, and embrace our sorrows and become so consumed by our sorrows and our suffering, what we're really doing is we're sidestepping the living hope, God, who actually called us into the kingdom. And that's Satan's strategy. You see, Satan doesn't want you to worship him. He wants you to not worship God. And if he can get you to not worship God, he has won. His tactic now is the same as it was in the garden. Genesis 3, Satan's tactic was doubt God. Did God really say? Then it was to deny God. You will not die. And then it was to deify humanity. You will be like God. The end goal of Satan is the elevation of humanity to self-worship. We become gods. Ernest Henley was an avowed atheist who survived his battle with tuberculosis of the bone to which he lost a leg and was eventually killed by it at the age of 53. In 1875, when he was 27, he wrote the poem Invictus. The title Invictus is Latin for unconquerable. It became the symbol of Victorian stoicism that stiff upper lip of self-discipline and fortitude in the midst of adversity. It has become the inspiration for many survivors of diseases. And the theme of the Invictus Games, which is a, para, uh, a Paralympic sporting event, he's become the hallmark of modern secular humanism for its powerful representation of the centrality and dependency of humanity for the solutions for humanity's problems. The poem is this. Out of the black that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bulging of chance, my head is bloodied, bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Twenty-five years later, a devout follower of Henley, by the name of Doritha Day, became a Christian, and she wrote a response to Invictus in simply titled, Conquered. And her poem is this, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the master of my soul. 
The end goal of Satan is the kingdom of self. The end goal of Christ is the kingdom of God. Whether in peace or turmoil, wealth or poverty, health or sickness, how we live our lives reveals who or what is in control. It reveals who is the captain of our soul. We trust God in the midst of suffering by recognizing the root of our suffering, that we are at war. But then we have to release control. We have to say, Christ is the captain of our soul. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. It's hard to humble yourself when you're angry at God. Sometimes the suffering is just like that. You've been bombarded from all angles. God feels like he's not there. You've cried out to him and he doesn't answer you. You feel abandoned. Years ago, I was at Bible school on the west coast on the island. And I had experienced some difficulties and some bad news. And all of this stuff that over a period of about three or four weeks had just been piling on me. And I had been crying out to God and getting no answers. I'd gone to Bible school to try and learn more about Christ. And here he was. It seemed like the further I learned, the, sorry, the more I learned, the further he seemed distant from me. And finally, in the wintertime, there was a winter storm coming in, and we have the big crashing waves and the cold wind. And I went down onto the beach. There's big rocks strewn there, and there's little pockets of sand. And I found a pocket of sand, and I knelt on the sand. And let there be no mis mistake, I prayed to God but my prayer was this. Pounding the sand, I said, God, I'm so angry at you. I feel so abandoned by you that the only way that I can hit you is to hit this sand. This is the closest I have to you because you made it and let there be no mistake, I am pounding you. And I pounded away. And I heard in my heart this still small voice that said, Go ahead. Hit it. Hit me. I can take it. And I pounded away, and I wept, and I cried, and I poured out my heart for about half an hour until I laid curled up in a fetal position on the sand, exhausted. And what I felt was this loving arms around me. I had been like this child that crawled up onto his daddy's lap, pounding away on the chest, running snot and tears all over his shoulders, saying, I hate you, daddy, I hate you. And he enfolds me with his arms. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. The word mighty means powerful. It is not the picture of a tyrant or a dictator or someone who's going to go smack you across the side of your face because you dare talk back to him. It's the picture of a loving father that enfolded a son that was weeping and crying on his lap. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chick under her wings, but you were not willing. Humility is a choice. It requires us to actually step into the place where we 
pour out our heart to God. It requires me to go to the beach and pound the sand and be honest with God. It requires us to, whatever our circumstance, to recognize that He is the captain of our soul and to release our pain to Him. Humility is a choice and it reveals who is in control. That last phrase in that verse, but you were not willing, that is the telling part. We can only experience the captain of our soul if we are willing to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. If we are unwilling, if we want to say, I am the captain of my soul, he cannot help us. How do we trust God in the midst of suffering? After recognizing the root and releasing control, we have to realize that we are not alone. This is a difficult point for me to make. It sounds wonderful to say that the church is a family and that we're not alone in our suffering, that we bear one another's burdens. But what if the turmoil and the suffering we are experiencing is from those within the church. Ezekiel 34 speaks of turmoil within the flock, where some flock have muddied the waters and others can't drink. The fat sheep versus the weaker sheep. And the fat sheep have butted the weaker sheep away. Go back and read that chapter, that passage on it. Yet it also speaks of a condemnation of a flock that is not listening to its shepherd. Last week at the prayer summit here, Rick shared a vision that God had given him of an oasis. It was important for two reasons. One, because it was a vision of what church should be, and in particular, Rick felt that it was a vision of what this church, and I agree with him, what this church can be. That is an oasis, a place of restoration, rejuvenation, healing, replenishment, rest, a place of, of comfort and health in the midst of a arid and dry wilderness around. We can be that place of healing in the midst of the Kootenays where people are struggling to find answers to life. We can give that answers. But the second reason that it was important, especially for me, was because it was the exact same imagery that God used to rescue me 14 years ago. I was in pain. That pain was so great that I was blinded by it and I could not see it. I couldn't see that the hurt was causing, the hurt that I was causing to Diane and to others. I had felt betrayed by close friends. I had felt that my character and my integrity had been called into question. I felt discarded and perhaps abused by church leadership. I hated pastors and the local church gathering. I contemplated briefly joining a house church. But my hurt was too pain and my anger was too hard and I abandoned the church. It was into that situation God had to trick me to get me back to church. And I was beaten, betrayed, and burnt. God drew us to a church that frankly was the opposite of anything I would look for or liked. It was liturgical, it was hierarchical, it was traditional, in a word, it was old. Yet within that place, within those traditions, within that liturgy, life and vibrancy pulsed. It was there that God was able to soothe my pain. He healed my heart. He replenished my soul. And most of all, He restored my love for His church. 
It was there that God removed the scales of blindness that had covered my eyes and blinded my sight. And I was able to see that the pain that I felt was pain that I caused to other people. I was able to understand that the root of conflict was my envy of others. I was able to begin slowly to see that the leaders that I had condemned and criticized as being selfish were in fact selfless. They were caring, not uncaring. They tolerated and endured a lot of garbage from me. I have in my notes the word consternation, which is a fancy word. What it really means is crap. They dealt with a lot of crap from me. They were not perfect. They made mistakes. But they were willing to endure much pain from me for the sake of that local flock that was under their care. You've heard this phrase, hurt people, hurt people. You see, the pain I had felt was primarily self-induced. It began as small, insignificant misunderstanding, a seed that took root, that clouded my interpretation of the action of others, which in turn caused a deeper hurt, which triggered a hurtful response, which in them caused pain and triggered a hurtful response back. And you get the picture. There is this vortex that sucks you deeper and deeper and deeper down. And it's a vortex powered by the root of our suffering, which is the enemy wants to divide us and rob us. Finally, after nine months of worsening situation, I literally stormed out of the church in anger and slammed the door. I turned my back on it. It's Satan's tactic to divide us. Picture this big slab of granite. You can take a sledgehammer and pound away on it. You're not going to break it. But take a small little chisel and tap, tap, tap. And further down, tap, tap, tap. A little bit further, tap, tap, tap. Little taps. And keep going little taps over and over and over again. And pretty soon that solid granite cracks. And then tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. And after a while, the granite goes, crack! And you've broken off a slab of it. What a sledgehammer couldn't do, little chisels, little taps could do. That is how Satan likes to attack. Not with big sledgehammers, but rather with little, small, innocuous taps that become a crack. It's why Hebrews 12 says, work at getting, getting along with each other. Keep a sharp eye for the weeds of discontent. A thistle or two gone to sea can ruin a whole garden. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy short-term appetite. My pain was the short-term appetite, and I traded away the life-giving life of a church because I embraced my pain. Beware of the Esau syndrome that trades away God's lifelong gift. It's why Galatians 6 tells us to test and evaluate our own actions. It's why Matthew 18 says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and work it out between the two of you. If Dave 
hurts me. I go and talk to him. I don't go and say to Mike, hey, you know what Dave did? You should, you should talk to Dave. No, I go and talk to Dave directly. It's why Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We guard against hurt from within when we consider others more important than ourselves. That's why 1 Corinthians says, when one suffer, we all suffer. We are not alone. While I own responsibility for my own action, in that sense I own my own story, I am not alone. As Kim pointed out, we bear one another's burdens. That's why Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, if someone is caught in sin, restore that person gently. Let's say that word again. Gently. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. When someone is in sin, and I guarantee you this, I will, at some point, offend or hurt you. Because I'm human. When I offend you, or sin against you, restore me gently. Come to me. Let's talk it over. Carry my burdens by coming and saying, Dan, here's what you did. We are different people and we are going to offend people. And recently I had a situation where somebody that I value very much in this congregation looks at things differently than I do. And I realized or I sensed that maybe I had offended them. And I went, I called them and I said, did I offend you when I said these things? And they said, no, no, I I realize that you look at things differently than I do. And I trust God that he works out and he brings people into positions that his will gets worked out, regardless of how they may differ than how I look at things. I loved that. It spoke of the grace that allows somebody who who looks at things differently than me, who we could debate vigorously over something, but instead of that, he says, I humble myself under God's mighty hand. I trust that Christ is the captain of our souls. And there is no conflict. It brings us to the difficult reality that sometimes the only place for healing No, oftentimes, most of the time, the only place for healing is in the concept of relationship. In the concept of relationship with the very people who have hurt you. God wants to heal us in the church where sometimes we have been wounded. How do we trust God in the midst of suffering? We recognize that we're not alone. We recognize where we belong. We belong in a flock We belong in a church that is ruled by love and mutual submission. 1 Peter 5, 1-4 To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, 
but being examples to the flock. I could look at that verse. In fact, in my pain, I did. And I criticized leaders on every one of those points because I was blinded. In truth, they were doing every one of those things. But my pain and my blindedness did not let me see that they were doing that, that they were indeed being careful, watchful shepherds over the flock that we were of. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the glory, the crown of glory that will never fade. Those folks, those leaders in that church, they will receive that crown of glory when the chief shepherd comes. 1 Peter 5, 1-4 gives us a blueprint for church leadership. A church, a gathering where the church is an oasis of healing and restoration. Church leaders are instructed to be watchful both as the whole flock but also watchful for individuals how is somebody doing to be willing not serving grudgingly to not be pursuing selfish gain or glory to not be oppressive or overbearing but if first peter 1 or first peter 5 1 to 4 gives us a blueprint for church leadership 1 Peter 5, 5 gives us the blueprint for the congregation. And Jason touched on that with the kids up here. And he's using the word younger to mean chronological age. The way that we normally use the term younger. In the same way you who are younger submit to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The Greek word for younger is neos. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Jason will correct me. It basically means new. So we can interpret that in the same way you who are new, you who are new to the faith, Diane, new to the faith. I'm old to the faith. I was a Christian before Diane was even born. She's new to the faith. But I'm new to you guys. There's certain things in the Kootenays how are things done in the Kootenays? There's certain things about the history of this congregation. How does this congregation work in conjunction with Nelson and Junction and so forth? Shortly after we moved here, I met with Jason and I burned his ears for half a day. I talked for a long, long time, telling him my story, our story, Diane and I. He knows stuff about me that the rest of you don't know. I did that because I wanted him to know who we were, what was our history? What's, what goes into who we are now? So I told him some of our past. One of the things that we talked about then is, well, you're new here, you're younger than most people here, you're going to be asked to take responsibility for things. And I said, I'm new, I don't take responsibility right away. Because I have to get to know the church, this congregation, and more importantly, they have to get to know me. And so over time, I got invited to speak at the men's breakfast, and I shared there. And then I started learning how to play bass because they didn't have a bass player, and so I'm playing away on that, stumbling away on the fretboard. Gradually, I've taken on some more stuff. You who are new, submit to those who are not new. Elders there doesn't necessarily mean church leadership. It means those who are not new. Learn from them. One of the problems we have in society 
is that we can quickly Google things. We can get knowledge fast. Without, as Shalem likes to put it, and Jason, when you said experiential learning, there were a lot of us adults that laughed because we know about experiential learning. Rather than learn through experience, we Google it and we learn that way. But the problem with that is we get lots of knowledge and we think we know a lot of stuff. Just take a look at your Facebook post page. Look at the comments on there. You see a lot of people that speak of that which they don't understand because they have a bit of knowledge and they spout off stuff. Guilty as charged. I've done that too. Just ask Judd. (laughs) Verse 5 admonishes us to be teachable, to submit to those who have gone before us. Humility is a form of deferring to others, to putting another ahead of ourselves. Ephesians 4 says that Christ gave church leaders to equip the church for works of service so that it will no longer be infants tossed back and forth. A teachable spirit is critical because it enables us to become mature, to trust each other, to help us through the turmoil of our suffering. How do we trust God in the midst of our suffering? We release our pain. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast your anxiety on him who cares for you. The creator and sustainer of the universe. The one who spoke and the worlds came into being. His hand is powerful and mighty. And he cares for you. He is your father. Who in the midst of your suffering, he says, come Sit on my lap. Tell me your pain. Let me take your sorrow. I may not get rid of the things that are causing sorrow, but let me take your sorrow. Cast your burdens onto me, for I care for you. After releasing our pain, we come to resistance is fuel, fuel, not futile. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. It is not futile. It's what empowers us forward through the suffering. The enemy wants us to believe that we are alone, that we are the captains of our own soul, that we are powerless to resist him, or worse, that we can only resist him by our own effort. Strive harder. Walk away from that place where you have suffered pain. Go join another congregation. Please don't. You find the perfect church, don't join it. Because you're not perfect. And if you find that perfect church and you join it, it's going to become imperfect. It may seem a bit morbid that we are empowered by knowing that others suffer also. But here's the truth of it. We are empowered because we are not alone. We are not the captains of our own soul. The same soul that we have, they have. The family of believers throughout the world, Christ is the captain of their souls. Just as he's captain of ours. We are not alone. Neither are they. 
For they have us. They with us have been built into a holy sanctuary. It's not just this congregation here that's been built into a holy sanctuary. It's worldwide. It's the Coptic Christians in Egypt that are part of that holy sanctuary. It's ones who are marched to the beach and beheaded because of Christ. And they, they are able to kneel there and they don't resist knowing they're going to lose their heads and their lives. It puzzled me when I saw that picture. Why not? Why not fight against them? What are they going to do? Kill you? They're going to kill you? But they went because they had humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God and they knew that Christ is the captain of their souls. That empowers them to kneel on a beach and lose their head for the faith. Folks, our suffering, the pain I felt, it's nothing compared to what they had to go through when they marched onto that beach. Trusting him to carry all of our cares. Resistance is futile only because we have been called into the kingdom of God. We have been built as living stones into a holy sanctuary. We who are many are becoming one. And we are being ruled by the law of love and mutual submission. We are being shepherded by those who are themselves being shepherded by the chief shepherd. And we are being protected under God's mighty, powerful hand. When we resist the devil, when we resist drowning in our sorrows, we destroy the power of the devil to devour us. Now that the enemy has been defeated, we can receive our reward. Verse 10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we are most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.